Hey everybody, so we have been using Zoom for the longest time to record our podcast, but we actually decided recently to switch to Riverside, which is just so happens to be sponsoring this episode. One of the reasons why we wanted to use Riverside versus Zoom, which I hope you can tell the sound sounds better, is because it actually is just exceptional at capturing audio and video quality. So hopefully when you see some of our clips on YouTube or <laughs> social media, those are also much better as well. So if you're on a podcast or hosting a podcast or getting interviewed, you can feel free to use our code PRODUCTLED to get 50% off at riverside.fm. The link is in our description box below. Thank you. Anushat Hia is an author of Growth Hacking for Dummies. He's also an advisor to many startups, including startups incubated at Techstars, First Round, and Harvard Innovation Lab. He spent five years working directly with Sean Ellis at growthhackers.com and served as growth leader at the Predictive Index, Jamber, Sophia, all to the large extent product-led companies. In this episode, we will focus on recent changes in attitudes of understanding what the product-led growth is in the first place. Anush is connected with many global growth and entrepreneurial communities, so let's buckle up and enjoy his unique perspective. So Anush, thank you for being here, the guest in the podcast. You have mentioned that like Literally any company that you work with so far was product-led, but could you briefly take us through your milestones of the careers? How has uh, this been evolving? Yeah, sure. So as you said, I started out with Growth Hackers, right? Where, to be honest, we were doing a lot of this product-led stuff before it was called product-led. We just called it growth. And I think that's where Sean, I think, showed and proved out the methodology that it doesn't really matter what kind of company it is, whether it is truly quote-unquote product-led or not, that you can apply these product-led principles to pretty much any kind of company, right? Because the kinds of questions any kind of company struggles with are all the same. And I think the simplest way to say those questions before I talk about the specific company, because you'll be able to see how it applies to every company, right? I think the simplest way to put those questions is basically that R funnel, which we are all familiar with, right? All of those steps right, are asking very simple questions that every company has to answer, right? So if we talk about, you know, acquisition, activation, retention, revenue, referral, right? I mean, what is acquisition other than how will we find more customers? What is activation other than how will we give people a great first experience? What is retention other than how will we get people to come back? What is revenue other than how will we make money? And what is referral other than how will we get the people who already use us to talk about us to their friends and family? Literally, it doesn't matter whether you are a small startup with two people or whether you're Facebook, right? One or more of these questions are questions you need to answer, right? And you can easily see that most of these questions apply to once somebody has actually encountered your product, right? Because activation can only happen once they've encountered the product. They can only come back to use the product with retention, right? They'll only pay you once they're using the product. They'll only talk about people once they're using the product, right? So you can see that growth in general is mostly product-led anyway, right? So which is why when we were working at Growth Hackers, we never made this distinction of product-led growth or not. It's all growth. And in general, for many, many kinds of products, growth is product-led by definition or the principles apply, whether it's, you know, when I worked at Jamber and, you know, sold this mug to people, you know, it was an e-commerce company, hardware product, 
right? But we could use the same principles of how do we find people? How do we give them a great first experience, whether that first experience is on a website using the mug, whatever it may be, or whether when we were talking about an HR tech company where you know you have a pretty complicated product set and you need to think about how do you onboard these people on, whether that's a combination of doing it manually within the product, whatever it is, you're still solving for that fundamental question of how do we give them a great first product? So we raise the odds of them coming back. So everything that people have been talking about and providing more clarity on, which you know, which should happen as the discipline progresses, right? Whether we talk about it in terms of growth loops, whether we talk about it in terms of value loops, all of those principles apply pretty much to any kind of business. So that's what I meant when I said like I've been able to apply product-led principles to many, many kinds of businesses. I absolutely love this. So let's double down on this example that you mentioned with Jember, for example, because like everybody knows e-commerce because we're all customers, right? At the end of the day. So my question very specifically targeted at this notion of try it before you buy it. They have like this product experience is that like in e-commerce, you cannot really like have the cup for a spin or something like that. So what are some of the principles? And that's extremely relevant for companies that are just transitioning to product-led notion. How can you still replicate this wow moment of experiencing the value before you pull out your credit card? Totally, right? And this is where you, know, you have to be a little creative about how you apply these principles because the principles apply, right? And so as you rightly said, I can't get you to hold this mug and experience how awesome it is to hold it just from a But website, I can listen right? to you and I can get FOMO from just like listening to Absolutely, you. Absolutely, right? So we had to tell a much better story, right? Which also meant we had to identify who we were talking to, right? So again, all of these principles where people keep talking about, hey, identify your ideal sort of ICP, right? So we had to do a much better job of saying, okay, you know, the people who have the deepest need, maybe these are people with Alzheimer's or these are people with much, you know, who are maybe 75 plus and craft that messaging so tightly with them, right? And tell stories much better so that they could see themselves reflected in those stories, right? Which I think is really what the light bulb going off for somebody is, right? When somebody says, what is activation? It's the aha moment, right? I think people conflate the aha moment with, I necessarily absolutely have to use it to get the aha moment. Because a lot of the light bulb going off is as related to using as it is the language people use to communicate something. And if you've identified the right person and understood the language they use to describe the problem, light bulbs will go off, right? And so in the case of an e-commerce type product, it's almost like your activation is split between the story you tell that then convinces somebody said, oh yeah, this is exactly what I'm looking for. I've been thinking about something like this forever, right? Which becomes a part one of activation for them. And then when they finally get it and they hold it and the promise that is made, right? Because activation is about the promise that this will help you achieve X, Y, and Z, right? It completes when they unbox it, they hold it and say, you know what? This really is the best thing I've ever held in my life, right? And I'll never hold anything ever again, which is what's happened to me. Right? I never hold any other mug. I've ne I don't work for this company, but I'm always holding it in every video, every webinar, everything else, because it's the best thing I've ever held in my life. Right, And so <laughs> retention is solved for, 
I buy this for everybody. Revenue is solved for. I tell everybody about it. I'm talking about it right now. Referral is solved Indeed. for. I mean, right? Product-led. <laughs> I absolutely love this example. And it can easily be applied to B2B companies as well. Just like, as you mentioned, through testimonials, through case studies, through user-generated content. I mean, it just takes a certain amount of empathy. So if a person encounters a similar problem that you are encountering in business, and what was the transformation that was delivered to their lives? So this is maybe something that we can learn in B2B as we are sourcing from B2C, because B2C, admit it or not, is a little bit faster in the majority of the fields. And I was wondering, just like as a little, very little follow-up question, was that the same with the predictive index? or were there any nuances? So it was similar. So part of what I was uh, involved with was the community at Predictive Index, much as I was at Growth Hackers, right? And again, the lesson I took away from Growth Hackers is treat community like product, right? Because you, again, have the exact same questions. How will we find people to come join this community, right? What will they see first that will say, oh, I want to be part of this community, right? And get them to sign up. What will we share with them day one, week one, that will make them want to come back and engage with the community, right? Of course, there wasn't any money directly to be made because the community was almost like this add-on to a product. So if you learned more about the talent optimization discipline, you might then say, okay, how do I put it into practice? Hey, here's a product that makes it happen, right? And so on and so forth. So again, the principles were almost exactly the same uh, that we were able to use in that context as well. But I want to just go back to one thing and sort of break down this thing, especially about activation. You know, Let's do it. I, it's going to be interesting. Let's do it. Right. Because, again, for me, I always struggled with it being, oh, it's this aha moment, right? And generally, people say, oh, people should do X action in Y time frame for, and that has always been a little bit fuzzy to me, right? And this became much clearer, especially with the Jamber experience, that for that for people to do X in Y timeframe, they actually have to go through a mental transformation, right? Because once they see something, the first thing that has to happen is they have to like what they see, right? Because if you don't even like it, you're not going to do anything about no, it. No, you're not going to be motivated right? to pursue it. Never. Right. So, so the first thing, and again, the liking has a lot to do with, it. maybe it has to do with imagery, certainly true with e-commerce, but it also has to do with, again, the language as we were talking about. And once you like something, that puts you in the mental position to then make you trust something. Because you actually want to trust it once right. you like it, right? And so what could you do to make them say, because I saw X, because I saw Y, I think these people know what they're talking about and they can do what they are promising me. What leads the light in my brain right now is also this element of resembles, right? If I see this problem, this transformation being made for somebody who comes from a similar background, so I don't necessarily relate with the stories how we made another billion for Google because that's totally not my reality. But as I see people that I relate with, I kind of display more trust and also maybe likability. This is where my brain leads. Totally, right? Because you have to have gone through both of these mental states. You have to have liked something. You have to have trusted that there's a promise that's being made for people like me. Only then will you try it. Totally. Right? So there is this hierarchy of sort of events 
right? And that you can make people go through mentally and translate that to what is happening on a screen is what are the steps I can make them take for them to first like and then trust so that they will try. And I think when we talk about these aha moments, we jump a lot to the try because that is the do X and in Y timeframe when really they have to do a few other things, whether it is mentally, right? Or it's something that is improving their odds of liking and trusting something that they will then try it, right? And when you, once you look at things through that sort of framework, I think it becomes much easier to then apply it to any context. So you can then see it becomes much clearer, you know, why actually holding a mug in the e-commerce context wasn't as important because I was trying to get them to like and trust that they would then try. That's so insightful. I love these sideways because this is where the magic happens. This is where we get like so many additional information. But hey, we yeah. gotta push forward. And I wanted to ask you, like, in addition to what you said right now, but you have been teaching growth hacking at pristine universities. You have been like so talented in terms of mentorship and advisory. And what would you say that are kind of like the main focuses and the main like nuances, the main kernels of the science at the moment, where are these people's attentions at? So I think people are finally coming around to the fact that it's not all acquisition, right? Because th that tended to be the easiest thing to focus on. It was more measurable, all of that. Even though I mean, for people like you who've been in the space for a while, you, you always knew that it's not just that. Right, But I think the sort of light bulb for, oh, we need to think about more than this one thing. And acquisition is just, it's like an iceberg, right? It's the 10% you see above, but there's a whole 90% below the water that really is what you need to take care of. And I think that realization is happening more and more for people, which I think is, is a good trend. And whether people want to use new buzzwords, phrases around to make their realization happen, all good, right? But I think that's definitely happening. The second thing, which I think maybe the realization is accelerating because of is the tough environment we find ourselves in, right? A lot of layoffs are happening, right? And so what especially a lot of marketers and I think growth people and product people are coming around to is trying to put what they know, which are, you know, thinking about things in terms of conversions or users or, you know, actions or whatever it may be, putting that more into a business context. Because right? it's so easy to think about it in terms of, a, hey, we released a feature. Hey, we did a test. We had a win. Hey, we converted 10,000% on that landing page. Those are great from a marketing perspective, product perspective, but that may or may not be as great from a business perspective. Because all the CEO cares about, like if you go and tell them, hey, I got a 10,000% conversion rate on my landing page, you and I both know what the next question is going to be. How much money did you make? Exactly, right? And if you go, mm, you know, I'm sorry to say you're going to find yourself to be a statistic, right? <laughs> if you don't have a good enough answer for that, right? So I think that realization that we need to tie our product and marketing outcomes to business outcomes, I think, is finally starting to percolate more. So there's still a gap between how that is happening and how that is made to happen. But it feels like some realization is happening that we can't keep operating in this in our own silos of saying 10,000% this and, you know, statistical significance that that's not going to fly for much longer. 
Love it. So that's like more of a transparency. Do you have maybe a third point or a fourth point to point out? Yeah. So I think what it all then boils down to, and this is something I have become much more attuned to as well, is when people come up with objectives or OKRs or you know, things like that for the year, it still feels like a lot of that is quite frankly pulled out of people's behinds, right? They say the number needs to move from no, 100 to 10,000. It's like, why? Because I 10, said 000? so. Because I right? said so. <laughs> right? And so it's like, why? And so, and yeah, but what because this... I said so. <laughs> Correct, right? Because I know of no CEO, you know, that is ever going to say, oh, 5% growth? That's fine. That's fine. I know of no CEO that will look at when you say 5% and say, why is that not 10%? You said 10%? Why is that not 20%? You no, know? No, but in fact, it should be 10x. Right. And I, I promise you, if I went and said 10x, then why is it not 100x? Right. It's so a lot of these numbers, whether it is from the desire of an executive team, you know, or even something from a growth team that said, this number should be whatever it is. Sometimes a lot of those are very random and disconnected from reality, right? And because those numbers are not connected to some analysis, starting from, you know, we need to, as a business, make this amount of money and or get these number of users in the next 12 months, right? And doing that sort of back math of we are at 100 users today, we need to make 1,000 users in the next 12 months, right? Because that's how much money it translates to. What does that then mean for how well our business needs to operate? Right. And so there's some level of, you know, you can look at the efficiency of how well your funnel operates, right? Directly from we get these many visitors, we get from these many visitors, we have these many trial signups, we have these many engaged trials, we have this much of a conversion rate from our trials. Our trials take one to three months, you know, to convert over whatever it is. And then we have these many final customers, right? And to be able to put sort of math on each of these steps of the funnel to then say, Oh, if we get a thousand visitors based on how well our funnel converts, 10 of those will convert and just gets us, you know, 10% of the way there. That means we need to make those thousand users, 10,000 users, right? That then starts to then say, okay, there's a business reason why we are saying we need to focus on marketing. Or if the number of users is fine and our trial conversion rate isn't as great, there's a business reason for why to focus on onboarding and activation. There's a business business reason to focus on product analytics. There's a business reason to focus on, you know, educational content or building out a community, right? Or a customer success team or deciding, hey, this pure PLG approach doesn't work. We need a product-led sales approach, whatever it means. It becomes a business reason that is tied to if these steps of the funnel don't work as well as they need to at this one step, it's all over, right? And so that's how we then start to tie our individual marketing product growth outcomes to the business outcomes, right? And I think that is still an exercise that is, let's say that's not happening as often as it should, right? But I think there is some kernel of realization, at least that we can't keep talking about things in terms of product outcomes or feature outcomes or marketing outcomes. We need to put all of that in the context of the bigger business outcome. 
True that. Amen. Just preach your science because it's so important. It's so strategic. And I don't want to see businesses being like a bunch of Labradors chasing the squirrel, like just what is the next big shiny thing out there. But sometimes, especially when the companies are just starting out, when they don't have all the necessary data, when they are just like tackling the go-to-market strategies and something like that, since you are the mentor in all the established institutions that we have mentioned previously, Obviously, what would you say to these days, to these realities, are some of the most sane approaches that companies can do when they are just starting out? What sure. would you say, Anush? Yeah. So I think a big reason for a lot of this fuzziness that startups feel is because they're not learning the right thing at the right time. Right? Because if you're just starting out, you don't want to be thinking about you know, the hard tech you will need or product analytics or anything like that. You can't even be thinking about, oh, when I have a million users, I'm going to do X. Like, wait, does even one person give a crap about this thing? Let's start there, right? And why would that one person give a crap, right? And so, you know, I'm, there, there's these very popular frameworks already out there that we can use, right? So I, I'm reasonably sure a lot of people listening or watching to this would have heard about, you know, frameworks where, you want to solve for desirability and viability and you know, feasibility, right? But there's an order in which you need to learn these things. Because if you try to solve for, can this be a viable business before learning about, does anybody even want this? Right? You're learning the wrong thing at the wrong time, you will fail, right? And so there is an exercise to be done. And this applies as much early product as it applies post-product market fit growing, all of that, is when we say we want to do something, or we think something is going to work, there is a whole bunch of assumptions we are making about why that thing you know, will work or be successful. Right? And what I think a lot of people don't do is list out every assumption that they're making. Right? And because only once you list them out, you can then stack rank them by you know, how critical an assumption is or isn't. Right? Because there are some assumptions that if they are not true, the party is over. Could you walk us through the examples, maybe from Sofia or something like that, because uh, that would be extremely assignful um, to imagine. Sure. So let's take the example of, you know, a virtual workspace, right? Which is what Sofia was, right? And there was this assumption that remote teams or hybrid teams are feeling disconnected from each other, right? Because you kept hearing that people have Zoom fatigue. They don't want to look at, you know, a bunch of talking heads, right? They're missing that in-person connection. Right? And so that was one assumption that a virtual workspace could solve for that connection that people are feeling or feeling of disconnection uh, that they keep verbalizing. Right? So that was a big hypothesis that had to be proven out that if that was not true, right, then they may still be feeling disconnected, but maybe the virtual workspace was not the way to solve for that. Right? And even within there, right, sometimes these assumptions are like super assumptions because they have multiple assumptions built in under them. Right, because you know, once we talk about oh, you need to have a virtual workspace for teams. You know, what kinds of teams? Right? Are these you know teams of ten or less? Are there teams of ten to fifty, fifty to hundred? Are these only teams that need to collaborate a lot? Right? Is it marketing teams? Is it HR teams? Is it any kind of team? Right? And if they feel disconnected, what are they feeling disconnected about? Do they just want to chit chat? Do they actually want to work? Right, because answers to all of these questions, right, are important to determining the next question, right? Which, if people are interested, then okay, you know, can we even do what people want 
to be done and only then can we solve for can this become a viable business so how can you discover that so one really super simple exercise you can do and people can google this is do an exercise called assumption mapping and again this works for any stage company it works for product works for feature right and it's a very simple exercise where you literally list out every assumption you have and you can bucket them right by i'm making these assumptions about why people want this i'm making these assumptions about you know our ability to execute right i'm making these assumptions about the market right just bucket them and you can then lay them on a sort of two by two where the x axis you know is on the left hand side i know a lot about this assumption on the right hand side i know nothing about this right and then just list out all of your assumptions along that axis right left to right from what i know most about to what i know least about right and then on you know the vertical axis you can list it by criticality right most critical party over if this is not true least critical it's okay if i don't solve for this now or at some point right and then what you'll find is you'll be able to move your assumptions along this 2 by 2 and everything that is on your top left which is most critical i know least about is what you need to solve for right now right and even within that one quadrant some things will be higher because they are more critical some things will be lower and this is a super simple exercise but you know something i think all teams should do regularly to test and retest their assumptions because once you have assumptions it becomes very easy to then say okay what is the hypothesis i can associate with you know the success criteria for this assumption and then depending on the assumption take a next step that says okay what is the method i will use to validate this is it more user research do i need to do a smoke test do i need to run a beta whatever it may be there's no right or wrong answer well, right? do explain us what is a smoke test please so smoke test is just when you know you have a link to something but you haven't really built out the product you're just trying to test intent for something so there's maybe a link or a big button and just want to see if it's there will people even click on it because we think people want this thing you don't build it out but then you do the you know oops sorry we haven't built it next give us your email we'll tell you when it's ready kind of thing love it oh my god that was so insightful i kind of envision this matrix that you just described but just like moving forward into our conversation just like you said a lot of things what companies should be paying attention to what are some of the pitfalls what are some of the possible mistakes now let's move to the good side and sure. maybe anush if you have some sort of examples that you are absolutely fascinated by as a growth professional what are some recent product led growth hyper successful stories that you have been impressed with yeah so i think a lot of what i have to say is what a lot of people are already impressed by as well unsurprisingly right so i think the common examples you will keep hearing about are how good like you know the air tables and the mirrors and the calendlies you know of the world are doing with really executing really well and i think there's a lot to learn from there how can we learn from there so because i think the one thing they do really well is to not inundate you with everything they want you to know they are very contextual and time specific about how they guide you to taking the next valuable step for yourself i think there's a lot to learn from if you literally just take screenshots which i encourage everybody to do create an account with any of these products and just literally take screenshots and i do this very regularly right because they also test and change and if you do this every 6 months you'll see what's different with those products as well because you know you, you'll see what's on their mind 
as well. And I think you'll understand how they try to also push you, you know, down, you know, liking what you see, trusting what you see, trying what you see, right? And constantly sort of delivering experiences that help you go through that sort of value loop again and again. Even if you're a free user, there will be a point in time where even if they don't make money off of you, because you found so much value out of it, they will be the first people that will come to your mind, right? When you talk to anybody about anything. I mean, this to oh me God, is... That's probably... such a mindset of abundance. It's so beautiful. Right. And uh, though, I think the one place I think a lot of traditional... I may be projecting when I'm saying this, but so anecdotally, I think the one unexplored place where I think marketers or growth people could take a lot of inspiration from is the DevOps world, right? It's not a world we live in. Right? Mm. So this is hardcore engineering products, right? But if you were to actually go and do an analysis, what you will find is that the greatest adoption of the product-led approach is within the DevOps world and within the sort of developer engineering infrastructure world because they are dealing with a very fickle audience in engineers. Engineers mm. hate talking to salespeople, right? And engineers are also experts at what they do and so they want answers really quick. They want to try before they buy, right? And so I think one great recent example, you know, shout out to Ben Williams from Sneak, who had just had a great podcast, you know, on Lenny Richardson's podcast. I would go sort of go and look at what Sneak is doing, right? As an example with product-led growth, right? Because sometimes you implement product-led growth in ways that are very different than, you know, the way we think about it in terms of, oh, you know, it's a trial or it's a freemium offering, like there's one thing they did as an example, it's called Sneak Advisor, which was a downloadable product for free that people could download and then run a scan on some you know files or repositories that they wanted to. And that's how they got people into the system by saying, hey, you know, we can already scan for free, but if you want to do all these XYZ things, there's a whole product available where you can now plug in this free thing that you're doing as well, right? So I think, again, you know, OpenView Ventures has a great map market map of companies and categories that are implementing product-led growth, I would say everybody go look through that map and go through how each of those people are implementing product-led growth. And especially in the IT infrastructure DevOps world, you'll get a lot of inspiration, you know, and probably do things slightly differently than, you know, your competitors would be. It's really fascinating. We should definitely link this map to the episode that we will be published. But what intrigued me, like coming from Europe, is that like whatever is going on in developer space right now is most probably going to hit us very soon because all of the privacy issues that we have, right? Because all of the data protection stuff that is going on these days. And for example, what is a typical developer? So they hate advertising, they have ad blockers, they don't consent to gathering their data. So you're literally not saying that you are doing growth blindly, but you have to think about it really differently. So that was really insightful, Anush. I've never heard this thought and I thank you to the moon for that. That was amazing. Yeah, sure. And That's so, and, and even there, right? Just as we, going back to that same framework we've been talking about, given you have an audience like developers who hate everything, yep. you have to get them to like, trust, then they will try. It's very hard to get a developer to trust. If you can get them to trust, you can get a lot of people to trust. 
I love it. This is just like such a fascinating theory to me. And this is the next thing that I will explore after we finish recording this podcast, but we are not there yet. So one of your portes as a ex-developer yourself has always been like this analytical decision-making, right? And moving back to the point that we just mentioned, so meaning that less and less data is collected and it is like more difficult than ever to visualize the customer journey that we are tackling. Do you have some pointers, some insights? How can product-led companies still make data-driven decisions in this jungle? Yeah. So again, I think it goes back to having at least a reasonable hypothesis of what your growth model even is, right? And in fact, I'm currently talking to teams, you know, who reasonably well-funded, all of that, but still don't have an indicator of what is our North Star metric, right? How can we even rally our entire team around a common cause? What is that thing, right? You, it's sometimes the problems are that basic is if you just identify the one thing that every, you can then ask everybody on a daily basis, how is what you're doing helping move the needle on our North Star metric, right? Or if you've identified that, right? Having done a basic analysis of your customer journey, the conversion rates at each step of your customer journey, identifying the biggest drop-off, right? Which then gives you a focus area you know, and metrics to apply to a focus area. And then to be able to ask everybody every day, how is what you're doing every day helping move the needle on our focus area metric, right? I think that alone, I think is super helpful to teams because I think we over-index a lot on the process, right? That, oh, you should be doing testing and you know all of this fun stuff, yes. But none of that is going to be impactful without all the work that's being done being focused. Focused. Right? Love that, it. That's where focused. the signal is, right? So alignment. And it's very hard to stay disciplined because everybody is different. Like you and I are very different people, right? And what takes no, focus No, never. You, never. We're not that different. <laughs> oh, no, no. I have data that says we are different people. <laughs> oh, shit. Um, right? So the, what it takes to keep you, you know, focused is very different from what it takes to keep me focused. But that is the job. Right? is stay disciplined over a certain period of time. And only then can we even have a hope of executing on the process, right? which is all of this focus area, metrics, North Star metric, all of that fun stuff. Right? Then we have a shot. I absolutely love this idea about focal point, right? So if you are like dispersing all your efforts throughout different direction, there is very little possibility that you will actually achieve something which is meaningful. Whereas if you focus all your forces, all your fortes into the single point, if it's done correctly, you are so much more likely to nail that target, which is great. Alrighty. So let's talk about your recent profession as an academic and a business personnel. How do you think that the line of product-led education is evolving? And nevertheless, after you finish that, how can people continue the conversation with you? Yeah, so, you know, I think firstly, it's good, right, that there's a lot of this realization, not only outside of traditional institutes that are starting to teach a lot of this methodology, but I think even the bigger universities are finally coming around to this idea that, you know, a lot of what we are teaching is theoretical, right? Because if you go to B school, what do people do? Oh, we're going to do, you know, these financial projections and PNL oh, analysis. PNL yeah, analysis. It's like, it's like, dude, tell me about somebody who wants your product first. And this is what I literally went through in my class first. We went through this exact exercise of some people had a product, some students actually had a product, some didn't, right? And we still had to go through this exact exercise of 
you know, what do you need to do next? What is stopping you from moving and doing the next thing, right? So, so for example, this assumption mapping thing or understanding your customer journey, I think all of these things are finally starting to percolate even to institutes of higher learning because while everybody likes to talk about entrepreneurship, right, it is firstly, the odds are against you. We are stuck at business model canvas. Correct, right? And so we all realize and know that 80, 90% of startups fail, right? So I think the thing that is now happening, while none of what is happening, whether it is higher institutes or other you know, private institutions that are doing this, I think what everybody's coming around to is we need certain frameworks to raise the odds. And that is all, I, I think this is really important, is no framework, no hack, no nothing is ever going to guarantee success. But what it can guarantee is raising the odds of success. And I think what is happening, you know, is that as people are moving more and more to this experimental methodology as part of their learning, what is being implicitly said, which I think needs to be explicitly said, is that your rate of learning is the biggest growth hack there is, right? And so this is something I say to every team I work with, like every Monday, are we smarter this week than we were last week or not? Doesn't have to be big, doesn't have to be small, right? Can be anything, right? Process related, what to do, what not to do. But if we cannot objectively say by pointing at something that we are smarter this week because of this, and because of this, we are either doing something differently or how we are doing something is different, we are learning too slow, right? And if we are learning too slow, odds of our failure are very, very high. Right. So I think this is what is happening, I think, implicitly. But I think over time, we just need to start talking about it more that it is the rate of learning that all of this is geared towards happening for us. I'm so intrigued. So where can people continue learning with you with all the awesome frameworks and insights that you have from your journey? What's the best way to continue this conversation, Anush? Uh yeah, so as you know, and as I try to follow your example, I'm on LinkedIn a lot. So just my name, Anujadia. If there are other Anujadias, they're, they're not the right ones. I'm the only one worth following. <laughs> and I'm certainly on Twitter, uh, very regular there as well. Always happy to nerd out about anything growth-related, anything PLG-related, certainly anything growth team-related, and of course, anything Maya-related. Happy to talk about that as well. <laughs> no, but thank you so much. This has been supremely insightful. And you know what? Come back next year so we can revamp if we've made any progress as a discipline. Thank you so much. Good it's luck with everything and keep on rocking. All right. Thanks so much. This was really fun. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Product-Led Podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with a colleague or friends you know who might benefit. We are always looking at which episodes get the most listens so we know which content to create more of. So if you want more of this particular type of content or style of episode, please share it out. And in return, here's your selfish reason to do this. Uh, we will definitely create more content just like this episode. <laughs> and if that's not your style, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts and tell us your favorite part about this podcast. I personally read every single one of these reviews and it gives me more ideas on what content we should do more of. Happy growing.